I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we have a new guest this week. Uh, someone, well, well, he's really an old guest. A very Well, he's not old, but it was a long time since he's been on our show. <laughs> In fact, almost three years to the day, yeah. Dr. Michael Heiser, who is the academic editor of Logos Bible Software, mm-hmm. a regular on Coast to Coast and other small, uh, inconsequential radio shows. Yeah. But uh, someone who's very, very popular here as well as elsewhere, who's going to talk about the divine counsel concept in Scripture mm-hmm. and its implications to Christians. And we have a full interview, so we need to go right to it. Let's go. So no further ado, here's Dr. Michael Heiser, and we'll come right back to wrap it up on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we're coming today with a great friend of our show, a blast from the past, Dr. Michael Heiser, who is the academic editor of Logos Bible Software. And we're going to talk today about the divine counsel concept in Scripture and its implications to Christians. And Dr. Heiser, I just want to tell you, it's been far too long since your last visit to the Future Quake Show. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's uh, it's been, I believe, exactly three years ago, back in the early days of our show, that you were on Future wow. Quake, back in the pre-Cambrian days, and uh, back on the uh, radio station X, and it's certainly great to have you back again. Uh, to get all of our uh, newer listeners up to speed on you, uh, we would recommend that they, f- uh, first of all, check out our earlier show uh, back in uh, September of 2005 at futurequake.com. Mm-hmm. In our online archive, you can get all the minutia and details to save us some time. The archive but, goes back that far? Oh, yes. Really? It goes wow. back into B.C. Wow. Uh, but if you could please also uh, briefly explain, Dr. Heiser, uh, and, and summarize some of your background and credentials for our new listeners in, in your areas of prior and your current scholarly emphasis. Sure. Um, if people want more than this, they can always go to my website as well www.michaelsheiser.com. That's H-E-I-S-E-R, right? That's correct, right. Uh, Well, I'm currently at Logos as the academic editor. Before that, I taught for 12 years on the college level. Um, I have a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and Hmm. also a master's degree from that institution and another master's from the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history. And... During my teaching career, I taught uh, biblical studies, I taught theology, biblical and systematic theology, I taught some languages, taught some world civilizations, that sort of thing. But uh, for the last four years, it's this September will actually be four years that I've been with Logos. Um, my, my duties there are basically I'm, I'm the person that oversees what Logos produces 
by the way of ancient language tools and resources. Hmm. So that's a pretty quick uh, intro. If people want to look up more than that, hopefully they can risk the boredom of doing that. But <laughs> just go to the website. So your library consists of very, very old and dusty books. And, and current events to you are something like <laughs> yeah. like 300 B.C. would be like well, state-of-the-art information. Logos, Logos has currently about 7,000 books digitized, and this is, wow. not PD, this is not PDF or HTML. I mean, this is, this is cutting-edge software and search capability and that sort of thing, and it's, it's multilingual. You can search for any word in any language in any book, from any book, across any book or books, or the entire library if you want. And it really our we view our focus primarily as biblical material, but in reality the software contains uh, primary text material and text in translation for really any language represented in the Mediterranean that has anything to do with biblical studies. So we have Akkadian things, we have Ugaritic, we have some Egyptian stuff, you know that that sort of thing. Just anything that really pertains to the biblical world, we we are trying to wow. produce actively. So even like the Rephaim language or Zamzumim, yeah. you would have that. Well, there, there's no there, there's no remaining text in that language, but we do have uh, a few inscriptions in Amorite, a few in Moabite, a few in Ekronite, which would be Philistine uh, language, really? that sort of thing. Yeah, there there are some some inscriptions like that. I know we had them because I typed them out last year. <laughs> <laughs> I had to wow. uh, I, I had to put the, the the text morphology, the you know the, the grammatical information on all that stuff. So I know they're there. So Hittite, Phoenician, all of the above. Mm-hmm. We, we don't we don't have anything in Hittite. We have a lot in Phoenician. Uh, Phoenician is very similar to Hebrew. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but nothing nothing in Hittite yet in cuneiform. All the all the Akkadian cuneiform type stuff we have is in transliteration, although we do have an Akkadian grammar, and there's some hmm. some image files there of cuneiform if you actually hmm. wanted to see them. Well, I tell you, for someone as incredibly distinguished as you are, and with the credentials you yeah. have, it's such an honor for you to make yeah, time what are you for doing us here? on the Future Quake <laughs> show. I just really appreciate it so much, and I want to jump into our talk at a topic, if you don't mind. Uh, you've written a good deal, Dr. Heiser, about this concept that you have researched, and you referred to as the Divine Council uh, in your writing and scholarly journals. Could you explain for the layperson uh, listening to our show what this term actually means? Sure. The, the, the quickest explanation is the Divine Council is an academic term that roughly, well, I shouldn't say roughly, basically corresponds to the heavenly host, um, the, the divine beings that uh, are associated with God, whether they be good or evil. Um, you know, we, we believe, because biblical theology teaches it, hmm. that even evil divine beings uh, you know, are not autonomous, but there are loyal and disloyal ones. But but the group collectively uh, is referred to as the divine council. And I I tend post fall and post uh, Babel Deuteronomy 32, and we'll get into some of these passages I'm sure tonight. Mm-hmm. I tend to look at at the at the council that remains, unless you come across a scripture passage where they're being judged as those beings that that maintain loyalty uh, to the God of Israel. But hmm. you know, in broadest terms, you have to include everything. Okay. Can you can you clarify when you say divine, what, what do you mean by these people's being divine? Well, I, I use the term because it's probably the least confusing equivalent for the word Elohim uh, in Hebrew. Now, we are accustomed to... Uh, for, the, for those people who've done enough Bible study that they know that Elohim is one of the names for God, 
they may or may not know that Elohim is also a generic noun mm-hmm. uh, that may or may not refer to God. And, and there are lots of Elohim, actually, that are running around in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. And that often gets obscured in English translations. But rather than call them uh, gods, which I, I don't really ob- object to, but I use the word divine beings, because when you use, uh, when you put an S on the end of gods, then you have to sort of explain to people that there are multiple Elohim, and how do you parse that with the, you know, the, the lone God of Israel, and you get into monotheism and polytheism, all the stuff that we'll probably get into tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what, I know, on, on the show. I know the traditional uh, evangelical listener here uh, that might be listening to our show may just have their mind blown, although I think we, we tend to get a very special clientele that listens to Future Quake. But uh, mm-hmm. of those going across the radio dial that... Uh, Normally listen to to Dobson or D. James Kenny or whatever at the station, and and are hearing this, um, they may be foreign to this whole idea about uh, uh, small g gods. But you you were just as an academic quoting what the original writers actually wrote down and the words they were given. If you believe in inspiration of scripture as we do, that sure. that the inspiration of what was there. So you're just sort sort of given just the facts, ma'am, of the choice of words that were given in in the inspired text. Right. I mean, this. I'm not going to say anything tonight that uh, someone couldn't just go look up in an interlinear if they if they couldn't read Hebrew. You could just go look it up in an interlinear, and you're going to see. Well, this is Elohim here, and it has to be plural because of the context, or you know, I, I will also add because of the grammar. But I'm not expecting listeners to know Hebrew grammar and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But you know, there's this is Elim, which is the plural of El, which would be one God, and you can check this all out in an interlinear, and your suspicions are correct. You're, you know, if if unless you're really a diligent uh, Bible student, and, and if you don't have the biblical languages, you're you're actively using interlinears and interlinear tools, and and trying to tap into the into the Hebrew lexicons. Uh, you're you're not going to have run into this. And the sad fact is that your English translations and study Bible notes are going to do their best to obscure it. And I understand why uh, editors do that. Uh, I don't, you know, they're they're afraid that it raises the specter of polytheism. But uh, I've sort of devoted my my academic life to to explaining why that isn't so and why, you know, looking at the Bible for what it says doesn't result in polytheism. And, I like to say it this way: We don't need to protect the Bible from itself, or right. protect you from mm-hmm. the Bible. Right. Uh, it is what it is. We we believe that that this is the Word of God, and that's what the text says. So and, why and, why try to cover it up? And thank the Lord we have the Holy Spirit too to help us with some of the more Absolutely. complicated things mm-hmm. where He chooses to reveal. Uh, I know some of these things you're going to elaborate here over the course of this week's interview, but I, I want to jump into a key passage that I think uh, sort of sheds light on a lot of things related to this. And this is the passage in Psalm 82. Can you explain about what is so special about the passage in Psalm 82 as pertaining to this concept of divine counsel? Well, Psalm 82 is sort of the the uh, you know textbook case, as it were, for demonstrating that there is an assembly and that the Bible actually uses that kind of language for the heavenly host. And in that assembly, you have plural, multiple Elohim. And if you're just thinking about it in English... Uh, the first verse says that God has taken his place in the divine council. I'm reading from the ESV now, or quoting from it, I should say. God has taken his place in the divine council. In Hebrew, that says, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. Elohim there is what we would translate as God. The verb, Nitzav. So 
so we have a singular Elohim takes his stand in the divine council. The adat means council. El is an adjective there, divine council. But the kicker is the second part of the verse. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment, or he, he renders judgment. It's Becherav Elohim Yishpot. And if the second Elohim there, same word, occurs two times in the same verse. First one has to be singular because of grammar. Second one has to be plural because you have this preposition in the midst of, right in front of it. So grammatically that has to be plural. So you have in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And that's where we get divine counsel. It's sort of the, it's by no means the, the only place. Uh, it's not the only place that you see it in the Hebrew Bible, but it's sort of a the go-to passage. Uh, so, this so, idea. so the cast, though, is basically unambiguously established at that passage where you have God, who we know, know as traditional God, and then you have these other Elohim, multiple ones, and we see some ratio on the stage and some positioning of all of them to help clarify things. Right. Now, what, what, what evangelicals, it's, it's interesting, your audience might be interested, both, um, well, a, a liberal biblical scholar, some, you know, that doesn't have any sort of orthodox, you know, Christian or, or even, you know, Jewish theological commitment, they're they're going to take the second Elohim certainly as plural because they want to try to prove the uh, the notion that Israelite religion started out polytheistically and then evolved toward monotheism and I reject that idea. Evangelicals, on the other hand, don't like to see plural Elohim there and, and frankly because they're buying into the liberal uh, position you know that we have to protect the Bible from from this polytheism and so what evangelicals typically do and conservative Jews. They'll say, well, the plural Elohim there are human beings. They're the judges of Israel or the Sanhedrin or yeah. you know, something like that. And the problem with that is if you go to Psalm 89, you have the same language. And there it's the B'nai Elim, the sons of the gods. B'nai Elim, or the sons of God. You can translate it singular or plural or whatever you want. you got sons, and that's plural for sure. They are meeting in the divine council, and the council there is B'Shachach. It's in heaven or in the clouds. Now, I, I've read my Bible through a, a lot of times, and I've never seen uh, the Jewish elders, the elders of Israel, meeting in the clouds. I mean, you're just not going to have that. Yeah, not that I and, remember. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and in Psalm 82, if you read the rest of the psalm, the gods are being judged because of their corrupt administration of the nations of the world. And that is something that harkens back to Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. And at no time were the elders of Israel given sovereignty over the nations of the world. I mean, that's something that's only going to happen when Messiah comes back and you have the, the reclaiming of the nations uh, that, that have been disinherited by God in the Old Testament. I mean, the, the, the human view that these are just you know, human rulers from, from Jewish society or Jewish authority just doesn't work in other passages. And I, frankly, it doesn't work in this one, but when you go to Psalm 89, and you see it's in the clouds, and then you see some of the other references to the council. It just doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, do you have any other comments on other interpretations of Psalm 82? I know, I know you've already elaborated here somewhat. Uh, anything else that we should hear from you that we might read elsewhere about this passage? Well, I, for your readers, if I think maybe the handiest thing that they could read uh, on the Divine Council in, in some digestible language would be in the, in the latest uh, reference work by InterVarsity Press. They have a series of Bible dictionaries 
the latest one is the Dictionary of Poetic and Wisdom Literature, I think it's called. And there's an article, uh, it's a great article on Divine Council in there, because I wrote it. <laughs> ah. um, so in, in InterVarsity's latest volume, it, it's, they gave me a good bit of length uh, to write the article on that. And I think for, for the layperson, uh, the interested layperson, that would be a great place uh, to start and sort of give you the overview of, of what Scripture says about the Council beyond Psalm 82. Okay. So for sure, that's a good resource. Okay. Uh, and there's also my, my website devoted to the subject, thedivinecouncil.com. Right. And, and, and you have copious information there, if people want to read further. Yes, yes they, can, they can avail themselves, and uh, it's all free, so I invite people to go to the site and look around. Hmm. Oh, you know, I, I can see where um, a lot of people would be very, very concerned about this, this whole concept of, no matter what you define them as, but this word gods. You know, being in the Old Testament, uh, I know you've not elaborated further about some of their activities on what's revealed and your understanding of these texts. Um, it would, again, people would automatically presume that's a polytheistic idea. Anything right. else you can add to assuage some of their fears? I know you said that, that you don't buy into the fact that it's what we think of as polytheism. Right, can you right. clarify that further? Right. The, the, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is not with the biblical text. The problem is with us because... We are used to, again, if we're familiar with the term Elohim, we're used to thinking of Elohim and then equals the God of Israel. We're just used to thinking of that word, that Hebrew word, as being equated with one particular being, and that being the God of Israel. Hmm. Now, the, the problem is, is if you actually searched, again, you could do this through an interlinear, especially an electronic one, but if you search for Elohim, you you will come across four different things that are called Elohim in the biblical text. And, you know, I didn't write the Bible. So, I mean, I'm just dealing with what's what there. I'll, let me run down the list. You have, of course, the God of Israel who's called Elohim. It becomes a proper name. You have the sons of God in Psalm 82 are called Elohim. If you go down to verse 6 in Psalm 82, they, they're called the sons of the Most High, and, of course, they're called Elohim in verse 1. Deuteronomy 32:17. I just got done. Uh, I just got an article published in Bible Translator on this passage. Deuteronomy 32:17 calls the demons, the Shadim, Elohim. In 1 Samuel 28, when in the Witch of Endor story, when Samuel is brought up, the, the, the Witch of Endor, the medium there, says, "You know, whoa! I see an Elohim. I see Elohim coming up out of the earth." So the, the spirit of the spirits of human dead, in that case Samuel, are called Elohim, and angels uh, are also uh, implicitly. I, I would I would say they're called Elohim. It depends how you triangulate Genesis 28, an episode there, and Genesis 32. And if people want that information, they can go to the website. But angels are also called Elohim. So it raises the question. You know, you, if I throw the angels in, you got five different things that are called Elohim. And people go, well, what's going on? They're obviously not all the God of Israel, and I, I would say obviously not. What, what the issue is, is we can't equate the term Elohim with the God of Israel only because the Bible doesn't. So we can't do that, but that we're just used to doing that. Hmm. What Elohim really is, is it's what I call a place of residence term. It, it, it tells you where where a, an entity or a being lives, so to speak. Uh, 
we, where do they live? They live in what we call the spiritual world. You know, God lives in the spiritual world. Angels are, angels are part of the spiritual world. Demons. The departed spirits of the human dead, well, they, you know, they're on the, quote, other side. You know, we use these, these terms in, in our discussion of, of life and death and the, and the afterlife and, and that sort of thing. They're on the other side. You know, Elohim just tells you, if I'm calling this thing an Elohim, it belongs over on that side, over in the spiritual world where entities are, by nature, disembodied. That's the key there. They're disembodied. Mm-hmm. And they can become embodied and come over to our world, the, you know, the, the material world, the world of you know, the terrestrial world, whatever you want to call it. There, there's, you know, it has its own geography, and the spiritual world has its own geography. So an Elohim is just something that lives over there and in I, the I think spiritual the, world. The key to point out, the, the, the real key factor to, to call many concerns, is that you are not equating them with the God of Abraham, sure. Isaac, and Jacob and putting them on a par. You, you have one being who is transcendent, that was, that was never born, has always been. And these other beings, while they still may be Elohim, they're still created beings, correct? Right, because our, the mistake is ours. When we see that word or hear that word, that we think, oh, that must mean, that must translate to, that must point to only the God of Israel. And the Bible doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. We've, we've just sort of invented that way of thinking. It'd be the same mistake as if you saw the word spirit in the Bible and you automatically assumed it was the Holy Spirit. Right. Or evil spirits are good spirits. You can't tell. You need context. Hmm. Now, of all the beings, of all the Elohim over in, in the spiritual world, in that realm there is rank and power, and authority, and differing sets of attributes. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. But none of the other Elohim are Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Okay? None of them are Yahweh. And how is he distinguished? He is the, you know, first of all, he gets credit for creating all the other Elohim in certain passages. So by definition, they are, they are contingent and derivative and inferior he is the only pre-existent being that is uncreated. He's the only one that is ultimately sovereign. He is the only one that deserves worship. I mean, that's when you apply the the divine attributes that we're used to when it comes to mm-hmm. thinking about the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. That's when they when they come into being. Uh, that because now we're describing in the Elohim world in that turf who lives there. Well, I, I kind of know who lives there now, but. What's the hierarchy? What, 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 you know, who, who, who is supreme over there? Not only is the God of Israel supreme of that realm, he's also supreme over our realm because he created that too. Hmm. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying anything unorthodox about the God of the Bible or the God of Israel. What I'm saying is, look, the text says what it says. I don't need to protect you from it, and I don't need it to protect hmm. it from itself. Isn't the real problem? Need to think more clearly about what right. the text says. Isn't the real problem that people who read the Bible and those who teach it, even ones who have grown up in the church, go over certain of these passages quickly, gloss over them, read over them without any contemplation or pursuit of deeper understanding, and just move on to the next passage? Well, you know, sadly that that's true. I mean, I can I can give you a little bit of my personal story here and sort of a. Of a, of a moment in time, you know, true confession here. When you, even, even if you know the biblical languages, a lot of a lot of times Bible teachers are pushed to prepare, and they rely on English. They don't look at the Hebrew or, or whatnot. But sometimes when you do, you come across stuff like this. So I remember when I came across what I've just described in, in a few 
that's what I actually thought. I mean, I was looking for a dissertation topic, and and when I saw this, I, I thought, there's just no way I want to tackle. I knew it meant rethinking our whole view of God, which was a whole lot of work, and it would also be troublesome to people to try to explain it to them. So I, I basically checked out. I copped out and started looking for a different mm-hmm. topic. You know, it, it was the, the thought of, of having to do that much work just overwhelmed me. But but it just it wouldn't let me go. You know, I, I just kept coming back mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, if I don't do this, nobody's gonna because this is really important. And I didn't I didn't obviously see the all the areas that it affects at the beginning of the journey. This was like 12 years ago. I mean, I didn't see a lot of that, but I just knew that this was important. And what what triggered what triggered it was, you know, God brought back the thought to me. And he, you know, why did you go to grad school? You know, why why have you deliberately chosen at, at my prompting every program you went to? You wanted it to be harder mm-hmm. and more antagonistic to the biblical faith. Why do you think I put you on that path? This is a question that you can solve, that, that, you, that needs to be solved, and you, you better do it, or, or you know, you're wasting, you know, this, you're, you're wasting this time and energy and this, this education that, that I've you know, stuck in front of you. And I, I was convicted of that, yeah. and I thought, you know, I, I really need to come up with, with something more coherent than this Israelite religion evolved from polytheism. I mean, I, if that's what the text said, fine, but I was... I just knew that, that there was something else behind it. There was another way uh, to parse the information, so I, I dove into it. And you know, now we here we are, 12 years later, and it doesn't get any easier to explain it to people. Right. You know, people still look at me like I have two heads, but I just tell them, look, I'm going to leave you at the same place that you're at theologically. The road, the trip is going to look entirely different. It's going to freak you out. It's going to scare you. But I can guarantee you one thing. When you get to the other side, you will have dealt with the text, and you'll know what the text says, and you don't need to be afraid of the text. Mm-hmm. God didn't give it mm-hmm. to you to, to overturn you know, your faith in him. He gave it to you to, to parse out and to, and to describe accurately you know, who he is at, at a specific time, in a specific place, through a specific people, in a specific language, and, and you shouldn't run from it. You should, well, you should dig in there and do the work. Dr. Heiser, I can say from from what little I have studied of your work, and I should study more, but what, what I have done, it has not led me away from orthodoxy. It's only given me stronger understanding to clarify things that seem mysterious to me in the Bible and made the whole big scheme of the Bible make a lot more sense to me. Yeah, well, that's, hmm. you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir because it, it does that for me. I mean, I the, the neat thing about what I've come to call sort of the divine council paradigm. Uh, it, it is a, a sort of a hermeneutical filter, uh, and, and it's not an artificial filter. It's just that the council and council motifs, council uh, themes and vocabulary just show up everywhere. Once you know what you're looking for, it just shows up everywhere, and it, it touches so many areas of biblical theology and, and really sort of tighten the lens tightens the lens on, on things that you can see not only specific doctrinal issues clear, but here's the, here's the kicker. It, it sort of has an all-encompassing ability to take all the weird passages that everybody skips mm-hmm. <laughs> right. and, that, and, that, and that sort of exist on the periphery, like, you know, the Genesis 6, the stuff right. in Peter, the descent into hell, 
you know, all, all this, even the head covering stuff, I mean, all of these passages, I, I found it amazing, are touched in some way by this paradigm, and and they they make sense when 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 viewed in light of it and viewed uh, you know in tandem with all the other ones and and that that to me has been the the, the most gratifying thing about spending my time in Israelite religion and specifically in this area. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would like you to uh, comment a little bit on the uh, the head covering. I'm I'm assuming you're referring to Corinthians there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's something that's always sort of uh, confused me a little bit. Could you comment on that? Well, to, to keep it really short, it, it goes back to the phrase, you know, Paul goes through this whole head covering stuff, and then he, he has this little phrase in there, because of the angels. You know, observe this because of the angels. And it looks like a complete throwaway, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's actually a, a reference back, uh, and, a, and a scholarly commentary, you know, will we'll tell people this. But So this is, I'm not coming up with anything new here. I can't take credit for this. But, um, a scholarly commentary will tell you that this is a reference to Paul's belief that having having the angelic world know that these women are spoken for is important because of what happened back at Genesis 6. Well, that's what and, I want to get. If, if, you, if I can hold you there for just a second, Dr. Heiser. Sure. I, I, want it to, I want you to take us through a brief survey of Scripture, if you feel comfortable doing that, mm-hmm. to understand the key points, because I think we're going to build up to that point uh, on on where they appear and what the key role they play. But, but since you brought up Psalm 82, just sort of wrap that up. I know there's a number of people who, who, as I understand it, refer to Jesus, who I think rever- refers to this passage when he yes. tells the leaders, uh, you know, the, the, the Pharisees around him says, well, you've seen it as written or heard it written, ye are gods. And that sort of leads them to put a, a human context to it. Can right, you comment right. further on that, on what Jesus, why he used that analogy for them before we take the big picture? Sure. You're, you're referring to John 10, uh, verses 34 and 35 uh, immediately, but of course John 10 as a whole you know, has to be factored into this. The normal view, or the normative view, I guess I, I should call it, is that, let me, let me just, I'll, I'll use the ESV again. In John 10:34. Uh, the Jews are picking up stones to stone Jesus, and Jesus says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now, that's where he quotes Psalm 82. Yeah. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I'm the Son of God. Now, that, that goes to verse 36. Now, the usual interpretation is, it, it, it is assumed when... Jesus says, is, is, it, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods, and he call, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, that phrase, to whom the word of God came, is assumed to refer to the giving of the law at Sinai to the Jews. And therefore, the assumption is that, well, Jesus is talking about uh, Jewish people, and, and, and you know, here Psalm 82 calls those Jewish elders gods, you know, we're back to that explanation of Psalm 82, if you caught that. You know, we're just talking about human beings here. And, and so the effect of that is Jesus, the, the, the normative view says that Jesus is saying, well, since you guys get to call yourselves gods, I do too. Hmm. Since you guys get to call yourself divine, I do too. Na 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 I mean, how is that an argument for deity? Because right. obviously they're not deity. 
Right. I mean, it, it doesn't do anything. Now, here's here's what's actually going on. There's no, the quote is from Psalm 82. There is no reference to Sinai and the law in Psalm 82. Go read it. Go check it out. It's right there. When Jesus says, is it not written in your law, in, in the Torah, and you can, you can go to other places where the word Torah is used of the whole Old Testament. It's not hard to demonstrate that. So basically saying, hey, it's, look, it's written in the Hebrew Bible, your scriptures, and they quote Psalm 82. I said, you are God's. Now, who's the speaker, if you go back to Psalm 82? Who says in verse 6, I said, you are God's? Well, God does. Mm-hmm. God's the speaker. He's speaking to the council, and he says, you're God's, sons of the Most High, B'nai Elyon, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you will die and fall like any of the princes. Now, God is speaking to who? Not the Jews. He's speaking to the plural Elohim. And I've already said it can't be humans because in Psalm 89, the council is in the clouds. He's speaking to other divine beings. Now, you take that back to John 10, and you say, well, what's the point of that? I mean, right. Jesus, Jesus is, so then Jesus is just one of the, one of the sons of God, and well, how does that help? Well, he is one of the sons of God, but guess what? Five verses earlier, what did Jesus say before he quotes Psalm 82? He says, I and my Father are one. Okay, He's trying to establish that he is to be equated with the Father. Right. And when he brings Psalm 82 into here, he's saying, look, fellas, you know that there is divine plurality in your own scriptures. That's point number one. And point number two is, since I've already told you that I and the Father are one, I'm the one judging the gods of Psalm 82. I mean, if if you look at it, if you just take it for what it says in Psalm 82 and not insert Sinai and the Jews into it, it's a pretty powerful restatement of the fact that I am above all gods, because I am with, I am one with the Father. Right. I which, am the head of the council. Which would make him an absolute lunatic to them, or yeah. someone who well, they, they be, they, or they better be very, very careful in in arguing with well, look, him out on the street if he's judging the gods. Did, did they, did, in verse 39, did they say, you know, does the script, does the New Testament say, well, the Jews looked at one each other and said, yeah, I guess if we can call ourselves divine, so can he. No, here's what it says. Again, they sought to arrest him. Okay, they know. They know that he's just given it to them right between the eyes with who he is. And they're frankly incensed by it. Based on their own scripture. Mm, well, yeah. I, did, I didn't mean to interrupt uh, you and Tom on, on this particular question, but I want, because I know some of our listeners may be a little confused about what we're dancing well, around I, here. I want to I add one more thing okay. about yeah. the sons of God and Jesus. Okay. What is Jesus called in the New Testament? He's called the monogenes. Now, it's a terrible translation. It usually gets translated only begotten. And I, I shouldn't be too hard on that translation because a couple hundred years ago, before we had the data we do now, it was assumed that monogenes came from two Greek words, monos, which is one or only, and genao, the verb, which means to beget. Okay, so hence only begotten. We now know based upon uh, additional Greek papyri where this term occurs, and frankly, Hebrews 11, a closer look at Hebrews 11, I'll get to that in a second. We now know that the term comes from monos, 
one or only, and gene, which is kind. So monogenes means unique, one of a kind. Jesus is the monogenes. He is the unique son. And Jesus has also said that in John's Gospel, leading up to this John chapter 10 incident. Now, how do I know monogenes means unique? If you go to Hebrews 11, who Isaac is called the monogenes son. I think it's Hebrews 11:17. Isaac is called the monogenes son of Abraham. Now, was Isaac the only begotten son of Abraham? No. No, because Abraham also had Ishmael. In mm-hmm. fact, Ishmael was first. Hmm. Isaac is the unique son. He's the special son. There's only one of him. Why? Because it is through him that the promises run. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's, he is the son of the promise. Mm-hmm. So the, the term means unique, and, and this term is used of Jesus to distinguish him from all the other sons of God in the New Testament. Now, now let me make sure this people have this clear before it causes another concern. Um, you are not saying he is on par, but just one amongst equals of the other gods, right? I mean, it's not like the whole idea of Mormonism where they put he and Satan no, on par as brothers. Not, right. Jesus is not one among equals when it comes to the sons of God. He is unique. And what makes, what makes him unique? Because he's one with the Father, the one who created the other ones. I mean, he, he is above them because he is of the same essence. As, as the God of Israel, as the Father, we like to refer to him. Okay. This actually takes us into uh, the, the Godhead idea. I've, I've devoted a lot of time and research to uh, arguing and demonstrating, this is part of my dissertation, that the idea of a Godhead, okay, a Father, Son, I, only, I restricted it to two for the dissertation, the idea that there's a Father and Son and they are both God, they, they, they are the, the, the Son, the second one, is but isn't God. He is God in that he's the same essence. But he isn't in that he has you know, he's a, has a subordinate rank. You know, he prays to the Father, just like Jesus did. We use this language for Jesus. Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. That idea, I, I argued in my dissertation, comes directly out of Israelite religion and the Old Testament. That is not a Christian invention. It is not something that is revealed for the first time in the New Testament. That is Jewish. And so I've, I've written a lot on Jewish binatarianism, uh, the idea mm. of a Godhead from the Old Testament. Hmm. Which obviously would be a tool by which I presume to witness to to Jews that are that are faithful Jews. But if you can uh, oblige me, Dr. Heiser, because I want to eventually get back around to the issue that you and Tom were talking about, but uh, some people may be getting lost in the weeds of the big picture of the significance of the design council. Could, could, can you go back and just take a little quick, little survey tour through Scripture about when these uh, sons of God appear uh, and, and what are some things, strategic things they do in the narrative of uh, what's related in history of mankind to put some significance on who they are and, and through the Old Testament, maybe even if you can give us some examples in the New. I think that will help people get their arms around sure. a little bit. Well, the, the best thing people could do is, is actually, if they want the data, would be to subscribe uh, to my newsletter at michaelsheiser.com. You can subscribe. And I'm working on a book on the Divine Council worldview. I'm about 260 pages into it, and, and subscribers can get that for free, the draft, the first draft, as is, and then give me feedback on it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll try to blow through a lot of this. The, the, the sons of God... Uh, the, you know, the plural Elohim, are around before 
uh, humans are created. We know that from Job 38, when the, the sons of God, the stars of God, as they're called, they're called both things in Job 38, rejoice at the foundations of the earth. And so you, you, have, you have essentially God and his counsel come to earth, this earth they've created, and the humankind is, is created. A lot of the language for Eden, and again, I have free uh, PDFs on my website about this, a lot of the language used to describe Eden is the same language used to describe the throne room of God. And, and the, the council meets where God's throne is. So Eden is sort of, you know, scholars would call it sort of a cosmic mountain, a cosmic meeting place, a cosmic garden. Hmm. It's called a mountain as well in Ezekiel 28, uh, where Eden is referred to by name. It's called both a mountain and a garden there. These... these it, it taps into the very ancient idea that, that God you know, is, is high and lifted up and lives on a mountain, or he lives in this luxuriant mm-hmm. garden and that kind of thing. So Eden and the meeting place where the council is, the, the vocabulary is shared. And the goal with creating humankind is to create human beings as the imagers of God. Now, I've translated that deliberately. We can get into Genesis 1.26 and, and mm-hmm. why that, that is is the correct translation, and theologically the the most uh, pregnant uh, translation as well. But the idea was that I'm going to create now beings, intelligent beings, that are going to inhabit this terrestrial world that I've created, and they're going to essentially be me as though I were physically here. And they're going to be steward kings and steward rulers over this place. And my heavenly family, my heavenly sons, and my earthly family, my earthly children, are going to be one at the same place. We're going to rule together uh, as heavenly council and, and reconstituted earthly council, or newly constituted earthly council. And this is going to be where I live. Heaven has come to earth. And this was the paradise you know, that was intended. Of course, it's marred by the fall. After the fall, you know, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Uh, you have the curses, you have the, the, the warning about the two seeds, you know, the seed of the woman and the seed of the Nahash, which we translate mm-hmm. serpent. But there's going to be two seed lines that emerge you know, from this, and they're going to conflict and going to be at odds with each other. And the, the story of the Old Testament then, you have this expulsion of humanity, and then God, progressively through the Old Testament, is trying to reestablish his kingdom on earth. He's trying to take us back to Eden, and that goes through a whole, a whole series of uh, to do that. The, the mo- one of the more significant ones is uh, Genesis 10 and 11 with Babel, where God is trying as a whole. But at, at that incident, Deuteronomy 32:8-9 actually refers back uh, to Babel and it says, "When the Most High divided up the nations, well, that's what happened at Babel." When he divided up the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. Now, chances are most of the Bibles of your listeners are going to say sons of Israel there. Uh, it doesn't make any sense because Israel wasn't around. There was no Israel at Babel. Israel hadn't been created yet. Abraham hadn't been called yet. There's actually a manuscript difference. Um, sons of Israel is in what we call the Masoretic text, the traditional Hebrew text, which all of our English translations are based on, except... Now, the ESV and the new RSV has incorporated the correct reading, which comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Sons of God. Those are the only two modern English translations I know that do that. 
But the idea is that God disinherited all of the nations and abandoned them. It was a judgment. It was punitive. He says, fine, if you're not going to have me as your God and, and, and have me as your king and we're, and we're not going to reconstitute the kingdom on earth, be gone. I'm going to give you what you want. In fact, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to give you other, language, other languages. And I'm going to set your, all of you, all, all of you nations, you're each going to be put under the dominion now of lesser Elohim. Here's where the sons of God come in. And they become corrupt in their administration of the nations. That's why they're being judged in Psalm 82. It's exactly what it says, that they have administered the, the nations of the earth poorly and, and, and corruptly, and God is going to judge them. He says, I thought, I said that you were gods, but you're going to die like men because of what you've done. Hmm. This is the Old Testament rationale for where we get pantheons, you know, the gods of the other nations. Well, they are disloyal members of the divine council that God put over the nations to sentence them to worship. And God says, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to go start over. I'm going to call this guy an or, this guy named Abraham, and I'm going to start anew. I'm going to create from nothing a nation, a new nation for myself, and through them I will reestablish my kingdom on earth. And that's why the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Yahweh against the gods of the nations and Israel against those nations. But he was also that's supposed to be a, Old Testament story. a light into the Gentiles as well, too. Right. There was still a redemptive wanted, activity. That's right. If you wanted to come back to the true God, if you, you, had to, you had to renounce your loyalty to the gods of the nations in which you lived and which you worshipped, and you had to become a member of the Israelite nation. Abraham and his descendants would become the conduit through which you could get back in the right relationship with God. And that is the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And it stems wow. from, from this council decision that God makes at Babylon. We're told about in Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 4, and you know other verses, too. I'm just skipping over lots and lots of details here. So, you know, you, you go through all of this. You go through, you know, they, they go down into Egypt. They are in bondage. You know, God brings them up. You know, we, we have God and the angel in the bush at, at Exodus 3. You know, and Moses delivers them through the power of God, and of course all the plagues are, are targeting specifically the gods of the nation of Israel. I mean, it, it's spiritual warfare all over the place. You, you get into, into the, the conquest narratives of Joshua and Judges and, and in Deuteronomy, and the not only are, are the nations that inhabit the promised land targeted to be kicked out, but very specifically descendants of the evil line that emerged from Genesis 6 are also targeted and put under the terror, put under the ban. The, they, they are to be annihilated. Yeah, I, Genesis I 6 over. is where the Benai yeah, Elohim. Right. Yeah. Genesis 6, uh, what happened you know, prior to Babel, you know, Eve had, had this promise that someday there's gonna, you're going to have a child. You're, you're, so, some human being is going to descend from you that's going to undo the effects of what you've just done here in Eden, you know, ruining all this. And we have this odd story about Genesis 6, you know, pop up right between that and the disinheriting of the nations in Babel. And that, the, the text does not say that the sons of God, Genesis 6 says, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they were fair, and they took wives of all they, they chose, and, and from them came the Nephilim. The text doesn't say that the goal of this was to pollute 
uh, what would be the messianic line, but that, looking back on it, that was certainly the effect, because the messianic line runs through Noah, according to the genealogies. And what happens is, you know, God comes to Noah, and, and the text says Noah is the only one that's pure in his generations. And we have to do something, because if you actually look at Genesis 6 closely, the, the sons of God had come down before the flood in the days of Yerod, which means coming down. And by the time of the flood, this this whole, what they're doing, you know, with, with producing Nephilim and corrupting the human race, had spread you know, over over the world as they knew it at the time, and God had to put a stop to it because the effect was that it was having was it was really narrowing the the line, the possible line through which the chosen one of Genesis three, you know, Eve's offspring, could come, and so it had to be put to a stop. And, and when you get into the wars of Joshua and, and Canaan, the the people it's it's really it's really interesting if you actually look at the places God says. You know, Moses, Joshua, you're supposed to go in there and you, and you basically kill everyone. You put them under the ban, under the harem. If you look at the, the cities, there aren't that many of them, but if you look at the cities where that is commanded, and then you look at the where the, the descendants of the Nephilim live, according to Numbers 13, 33, you have the Anakim, you have the Rephaim, you have the Amim, you have the Zamzumim, all these giant clans. They live in the same regions and vicinities, and in some cases even the very cities themselves, of the places put under the ban. And so you, mm. you have this continuing spiritual conflict where, where the, the seed, you know, the, the, the sinister seed, the seed that opposes uh, the people of God and wants, wants the ruin of the people of God, they have to be dealt with first before the land can be taken. And that's why, you know, when they went in with the spies and they said, oh, you know, we've seen mm -hmm. the sons of Anak here and they're huge. You know, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and the text says, point blank, Numbers 13, these are the descendants of the Nephilim. You know, they, they, they come from, from the same group. You know, Do so you Dr. The Heiser. The whole Old Testament is you, you, you go through all these conflicts and all this cosmic geographical stuff, and it all goes back to this heaven and earth uh, you know, symbiosis and conflict and spiritual war. Dr. Heiser, if I can just ask as a lay person to see if I understand what you're telling me, mm -hmm. to try see if this sheds further light on what God's plan was, where a lot of people have confusion. When the flood came, many people, particularly those that are not Christians, see a very, very vengeful God that is just willfully wiping out, you know, the over, almost all of the entire human race. Whereas with your with your understanding, to me, I see it as an act of compassion. As a as a last stage to preserve a kinsman redeemer of the same line, and that he waits so long until basically Noah is it. He waits for repentance until that very last moment where it's essential to save the line, and then and then we go into the later in Canaan where they have set up camp to try to I don't know keep them out of the promised land or do something. But we also know that the wives or the uh, the men of the camp of Israel had a real propensity to go for for the women mm -hmm. of other of other tribes, and if right. these people have this mixed breed genetic whatever it is from the Nephilim all in there, and in these in the Hebrew men have a proclivity to that and a p potential of ruining that kinsman redeemer line, then there's really no option but to eliminate those people to help preserve the salvation for all of mankind. And not not just a willful uh, destruction of men, women, and children. Am I understanding that correct? Is that an explanation, maybe, of what God's plan was? 
Well, I no, I, I I would agree. I mean, but when you get to that point, you know, they have 120 years to repent, to see what what Noah's doing, and and you know, Noah's telling them what he's doing. I'm building this ark because God's going to send a flood, and you know, he's he's going to wipe out you know the wickedness, and they're just laughing at him and whatnot. I mean, he he does wait, you know, and and it, it's something that has to be done. I mean, what the if the line is stopped, if the line is cut off, then there is no humanity through which the messianic deliverer can come. And that means that salvation, according to what God had said prior, is undone. I mean, God would have to essentially say, you know, well, I, boy, I goofed here, or I was powerless to do this, and mm, let, me, let me come up with plan B, let me think a little bit about it. I mean, he, he has to do what he does based upon what he had said earlier. And he, and he, he does give them a, a tremendous amount of time uh, to follow Noah, you know, to, to get with the program. But they don't. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not one that's going to vote yes. You know, I, I, I like war, you know, and I like <laughs> killing people and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But, but I'm certainly glad that God did what he did because, you know, I'm a, I'm a recipient, I'm a, I'm a benefactor, like everybody else can be of the plan of salvation through Christ. And that would have been cut off, you know, had this not, you know, had it not happened this way. And when you get, you know, further on into the Old Testament, it's not like God just, you know, shows up one day and says, oh, well, I feel like annihilating someone today. I've had a really bad day. Mm-hmm. So who's it going to be this time? No, he, he tells Abraham, look, it's going to be 400 years. It's going to be four generations. You know, by then the iniquity of the Amorites is going to be full. And I mean, he, he gives these people groups a huge amount of time, plus... They have, they have a similar history. They have a similar um, stream of, of, of truth. The Israelites, you know, had their own, you know, revelation from the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and look at, at what these people are writing, they, there are a lot of touch points uh, because of a common memory of a flood and a common memory of, of, a, of a Babel incident. Are these um, also Semitic people, too? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 the mm-hmm. Sumerians technically are not Semitic. Right. They're, they're technically something else. It's I'm just different. talking about in Canaan. Most of the Canaan. Right. In, in, in Canaan, yes. This is this is the broader Semitic, you know, family of, of languages and people groups here. I mean, they there is, you know, ample opportunity uh, to look at the Israelites and the way they're being blessed and so on and so forth, and and to change, but it doesn't happen. You know, when, mm-hmm. when you go through the rest of the Old Testament, it's 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 again the attempt to reestablish the kingdom. And, you know, we get David, you know, and we, we get Solomon, and then the kingdom splits. And you go on into the New Testament, and, and there's a, there are a lot of divine counsel motifs associated with Jesus, specifically the, the binatarian stuff and what he is called. Uh, he, is, he is, again, the head of the council, the lord of the council. In Hebrews chapter 2, for instance, it, it's a wonderful passage because, you know, to which of the angels did, did God promise this? Um, Hebrews one six quotes Deuteronomy thirty two forty three, which references the other the other God, the council, and, and, and that they're answerable uh, to, to this one that God has put above all gods and, and, and things like this. But the neatest part of it is, is, is that Jesus confesses that we are his brothers in the quote congregation. It's the word for council. You know, Jesus is, is is there saying, look, you know, these are the ones that you've given me. They are my brothers. They belong here just like I belong here because I've made them mm-hmm. righteous. You know, I'm seated at the right hand of God. Let them in. Uh, 
our whole concept, the New Testament concepts of adoption, okay, of sonship, being grafted into the family. In fact, those what, words are explicit in the Scripture, right? I mean, it's not oh, ambiguous. It says we have the right to become the sons of God, and we're given well, that. John, right. The Apostle John says, you know, brethren, we are... <laughs> You know, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And then John adds, and that's what we are. And he actually adds the phrase right after it in 1 John chapter 3, that's what we are. Why does, why does Revelation end with Eden coming back to earth? Because that's the whole point. You know, when, when, when the Holy Ones come with Christ at Armageddon, you know, people, oh, the Holy Ones, that's us. That's you know, the New Testament believers. Well, it, it is, but it's more than that. If you go back to the passages in the Old Testament, like in Zechariah, where those passages are, are, are being quoted, it's the Holy Ones. It, it, is, it is the Kedoshim of the Council of Psalm 89. Coming back, it, it's, it's you know, the Dead Sea Scroll, the War Scroll, I think, had it right. It's a final war between gods and men, between the spiritual forces, those of the spirit world, you know, the, 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 the evil Elohim and evil people against the loyal Elohim and, and his people. It's, it's a battle for all the marbles. It is for the dwelling place, for the council uh, place, for Jerusalem, for Zion. It, it is the final conflict. And the result of that is, is heaven comes to earth again. All things are made new. The day of the Lord has come. You know, all these, all these themes that, that, that flow through the Old Testament, and boy, this is like 2% of what you, know, you, could, you could look into in this overly quick so, well, I, I think it's been so instructive for people, though, because what you've done is you've laid out... I'll this, throw in one more. Okay. That's really, this is one of my favorite ones. Why is it that Peter, in First Peter 3, links baptism to Jesus' descent into Hades, into hell? Hmm. Why does he do that? What's going on there is he's using typology... In in Jewish literature prior to the prior to the New Testament, when the sons of God sinned in Genesis six, their their doom is announced by Enoch. Okay, we're familiar with Enoch from the Old Testament. Right. Enoch, you know, they, the, the the watchers, the sons of God, the, the evil sons of God, go to Enoch and say, "Look, you know, we 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 know we're guilty. Could you go to God and ask us, you know, ask him to?" you know, to commute our sentence and to let us back and to forgive us and whatnot. And Enoch goes to God. This is, a, this is again, in, in books like the Book of Enoch and intertestamental Jewish stuff. Enoch goes to God, and God says, tell them the answer is no. Okay, They've, their fate is sealed. Enoch goes back and says, you're toast. You know, sorry, but mm-hmm. you know, good idea to appeal, but the appeal is denied. Right. All right, well, this is this story... You know, whether it's canonical or not, it doesn't matter. I don't think it is canonical, but it's in the consciousness of, of, of Jewish people at, at right. the time, because Enoch was a widely circulated book. Well, what, what Peter's doing in First Peter 3 is he's saying, just as Enoch descended and announced the doom of the watchers, so Jesus descends and he preaches to the spirits in prison. He tells them again, look, you thought you had won when I was crucified. Psalm 22, the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. Bulls of Bashan in the Old Testament are demons. You thought you had won. But I'm here to tell you, yeah, I'm in the grave now. But in three days, I'm out of here. And you lose again. 
and he, ra- he rises from the dead. And, and the reason it's linked with baptism was baptism was viewed as a moment of decision. This is where you declare, not only to the people who see whose side you're choosing in this war, but every time a belief, you know, someone gets baptized, it is a declaration to the spirits in prison that you have lost another one. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're doomed. Wow. The, the loss of your kingdom, it regresses one person at a time. This is why in the early church, you go look it up, they had pronouncements in their baptismal formulas that were denunciations of Satan. And right. Satan. Was that in the Didache? That's why they did it. Was that in the Didache where they did that? I, I know yeah. there was part it, of the it, training. It's extremely early. Mm. Right. Extremely early. And, and baptism for them was spiritual warfare because it was every person that did it, it was, it was a declaration to the spirits in prison. That, that your kingdom has taken another step back. It is shrinking moment by moment, person by person. But that, again, that, that's just an example of how baptism is touched you know, by this whole divine council worldview. And there really isn't a doctrine that, is, that remains untouched yeah. by it in some way. And well, there's, a, there's, a, there's another verse that I think is just always amazing, too. It puts in light of what you've been teaching us when it says that all creation awaits... The appearing of the sons of, yeah. of God, is that, or if I've said that correctly, or yeah, the unveiling of the sons of God. Prevails, yeah, for the appearance of the sons of God. So, so now, if I understand you right, what, what, the, what the gradual unveiling through Scripture, starting from Genesis toward the end, is that uh, there has been a failure of these divine beings, the judgment. Uh, is, is occurring. There's some already in 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 in, uh, in judge in judgment and are in chains, but but ones that will fall. And God has given us through His grace the lofty position of replacing them in this yeah. lofty position of heaven as the sons of God, to uh, through His guidance uh, to help administer over the new heavens and new earth and creation, and that purely through His grace and gift alone, He's chosen to share that administration through us which is a cause for great celebration for all of us. Right. We, we are the reconciliation. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 to the believers that are bickering among themselves, hey, don't you know that you're going to rule over angels? <laughs> don't you get it? He says that, you know, John says in Revelation, to him that overcomes, I will, I will put him over the nations. Right. Okay? We subsume that status that the fallen sons of God now possess. Uh, this is just strewn throughout the Gospels, throughout the epistles. There are just things that, if you don't, if you don't sort of have the worldview, the Old Testament worldview in your head, you're going to miss things. What sure. Jesus, Transfiguration. Everybody's read the Transfiguration. Okay, we all know about the Transfiguration right. account. Mm-hmm. Okay, where does Jesus choose to, to be transfigured? Where does he go? He goes to. This is actually the latest chapter in, in my mm-hmm. book. He goes to Mount Hermon. Right. Okay, that is that's the best candidate, you know, archaeologically speaking, because it was it was a focal point for the worship of pagan deities, and it's right next to where he is in the preceding verses. He goes to Mount Hermon. What's significant about about Mount Hermon? Well, yeah, Hermon. That's where the sons of God from, came down. Yeah. Right. That is the that is the place wow. where the sons of God descended, you know, according to intertestamental Jewish literature to hatch their plot in Genesis 6. That's the place. Not only that, but Hermon is a noun that's related to Kerem, the ban, okay, you know, the, 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 the utter destruction. 
I mean, Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm here. This is who I am. And the kingdom of God has begun. This is why Jesus, the announcement of the kingdom of God is linked to the expulsion of demons from people. You know, just go look up the phrase kingdom of God and demons, mm-hmm. and you're going to see Jesus says it. If I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, it's, it's a declaration. It's, he's, it's a turf war. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and the and demons... The turf war has begun. And the demons, when they saw the new sheriff in town... They they asked him not to be sent to the abyss, correct? Yes, because we ain't getting out of there because that's where the, the fallen sons of God are being kept. Right. Well, now back to um, well, well. First of all, let me make sure I clarify for our listeners that they don't have any opportunity to misunderstand you this great teaching. For Tom, too. <laughs> uh, you are not teaching a new age type teaching that we can all attain through our own efforts and equivalency no. with God, or that we become gods ourselves that we become gods of our own kingdoms or anything of the like. Can you no, clarify all, that? All of this revolves around the, the promise of the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Monogenes, you know, the Lord of the Council, the one who is, you know, Yahweh, but of course is the Son and not the Father. I mean, it, like I said before, it, it, it's all orthodoxy. It, the, the road looks dramatically different. The ride is bumpy, because I'm not bothering to base my theology on English Bible. I'm not bothering to filter it through creeds. I'm just going with what the text says. I'm trying to understand what the text says in light of its ancient Semitic background and try to think like a Semite. Right. And let the chips fall where they may. You know, and it's not like I'm, I'm coming out any anywhere dramatically different. But my reasons for holding different positions, or for holding positions that we're, we associate with Orthodoxy, my reasons could be quite different. Well, but I'm but I'm in I'm on the I'm in the same camp. I'm just there for different reasons. Right. Uh, c- can you go back to the question when I, before I really interrupted you and Tom uh, to this one passage in the New Testament about the covering and because of the angels? Yeah. Can you go back now that we've laid the the yeah. basic groundwork? Can that's you go back and explain that? That's always been a little confusing to me. Yeah, it, so it'd be good to hear in, what you've said. In, in a nutshell, the the head covering actually goes back to a a sort of what's the word I can use. Um, sort of, sort of like a, a wives' tale view of. It's going to sound weird, but of where babies come from. Uh, the there was there was, was a belief in the ancient world that a, a woman's hair had something to do with her ability to conceive, you know, with her fertility. Hmm. And without getting into too many details, this is this is why Paul says, well. Women should do this with their hair. Women should do that. Men shouldn't do this or that with their hair. It was wrapped up in this in this popular conception of you know of fertility and, and literal conception. And so mm. Paul winds up this whole argument by saying, "Look, you need to be careful with this. You, the whole point is modesty. You need to be very modest about what you're doing here. Not only because of what it signals, you know, in popular culture here in the first century." but also because of the angels, because they could be tempted, you know, to do what they did before. You know, God even says in Job that, that God does not trust the angels. I mean, it says that uh, several times, because mm. he knows that they can fall. I mean, he's seen plenty of them be disloyal. Uh, so they're fallible. They're just, you know, they're, they're like us. They're not, they're not perfect. I mean, we, we commonly teach that they're sort of cemented in righteousness or something. <laughs> and, and, and Job is very clear. You know, he, does, he does not trust um, 
you know, God puts limited faith <laughs> in, in their ability uh, to carry out his will. And, and I think that idea is in concert here with Paul's concern that, you know, you, you really need to, to watch what you do here because we don't want to see this happen again. Right. You know, it, it led to widespread evil on the earth. You know, he doesn't mention the line or anything like that. Again, that was an effect, not really a motivation necessarily. Mm. It could have been a motivation to somebody. But we, do, we, don't, we don't want this to happen again because look what happened the first time. Right. I mean, the evil overspread the earth. It was just, it was bad. It was bad news. So don't, don't you know, make any provision for this. Now, uh, it, I, I, I want to just sort of conclude our thinking here, and then, then have a little wrap up from you on this whole idea of the of the uh, the father son relationship in the Old Testament, very briefly. But I I understand this this whole concept of what you've shown about the sons of God and our future destiny as being yet another justification for the sour grapes from the fallen entities today. Uh, not only are we recipients of salvation, but we're going to put them out of work in the worst way. <laughs> I mean, we're we're taking yeah. over their desk, basically. Correct? Yeah, we are. We are. We're, we're not really given a, a very detailed description. I mean, the only thing, right. the only language that we're given is that is that we do uh, we reconstitute an originally intended part of the council, intended back in Eden, and for some reason, and I think I think the reason is really wrapped up in the incarnation and and just generally God's love for humanity. That for some reason we are held in greater esteem uh, than they are through God's grace. Hmm. Yes, yes. Well, uh, can, can, can you very quickly, because then I want to sort of wrap up a little bit about where we're going in the future, but can you very succinctly explain just some tidbits of how the Jewish people at least should have had an understanding of a father-son relationship and they have been more clearly able to understand Jesus' mission and who he was? Let me let me well, before I do that. Let me say that if your listeners go up to www.thedivinecouncil.com, if they put in a a uh, forward slash and type in the word Tacoma with a capital T. Dot htm, I have PowerPoint presentations and videos of PowerPoints of a seminar I gave on this topic just this past weekend, and they're free and they can have them. Wow, mm. it, it'll it'll take people through the entire uh, gamut of of what was known as the two powers in heaven teaching. Now, in a nutshell, prior to 100 A.D., using round numbers, prior to that time in Judaism, Judaism allowed for and embraced the idea that there were two powers in heaven. And we're not talking about Zoroastrianism here with one good and one evil. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Gnosticism with the, the ethereal God and the evil Demir God. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about two good guys, okay? Two that were holy. And the Jewish thinkers in the, in the period prior to the New Testament were somehow looking at their Old Testament and getting this. And again, the other part of my dissertation that I didn't mention until now was on this topic as well. You could see that they were looking at certain scriptures and they felt that they had to conclude that there were two powers. Example, there's a passage in Genesis 19.24. This is a real simple one. But it says, Yahweh rained down fire from heaven from Yahweh on Sodom and Gomorrah. Why doesn't it say Yahweh rained down 
fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? Why does it say that, that Yahweh rained down fire and brimstone from Yahweh? Why are there two Yahwehs in there? That just sounds weird. Mm-hmm. There are other places, like in Amos 4.11, when, when Yahweh mentions God in the third person. Yahweh, thus says Yahweh, God did this and that. Well, that's just weird. Why doesn't he say, I did this and that? So the rabbis noticed this, but the big one they noticed was in Daniel 7. Now, there's a special title in the ancient world, in the ancient Canaanite Semitic world, for Baal. Okay, Baal, everybody knew Baal was a god. Okay, Baal is the chief enemy of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Nobody thinks that Baal is just an angel or some other sub-deity character. Everybody knew Baal was a god. And Baal was, was called the one who rides on the clouds or the cloud rider because he supposedly gave rain and helped the crops grow and all this kind of stuff. Well, the biblical writers, and they often did this, they do this dozens and dozens of times, they took that title of Baal and, and usurped it from pagan literature, even and in some cases word for word, and they attribute the title to Yahweh. Why would they do that? Well, they're saying, no, it's not Baal that brings rain, it's not Baal that rides the, the clouds, it's Yahweh, it's the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Baal is just a flunky. He is not the true God. This is the true God, and the true God does this stuff. Well, that title, riding on the clouds, is used five times in the Old Testament, always for the God of Israel, always for Yahweh, except one time. In Daniel 7, we have the Ancient of Days seated. This is a divine council scene, because thrones, plural, are set, and the court of the council sits to make a decision with the Ancient of Days. And one like a son of man, a human-looking one, according to Daniel, comes riding on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. You have a second being, a second person, get referred to with the cloud-riding language. Are the exact words used? The, the exact words are, they're not, it's not exact in every instance. It can be like, he who rides the heavens, he who makes the clouds his chariot, he who rides the clouds, that kind of thing. But it only, only occurs five times, okay. plus this once in Daniel. And this became the chief verse. This Daniel 7, verses, verses 9 and following, were actually after 100 A.D., which is the point when the Jews declared this idea of two powers a heresy. They did it in response to Christianity, I mean, for obvious <laughs> reasons. But, but Daniel 7 was actually put on a, on a, on a forbidden list. You, could, you were not allowed to read it as a Jew unless you had a rabbi with you, because they wanted to, to protect people from seeing two divine beings in the passage. And that was, you know... Prior to 180, that was that was perfectly normal. It was it was fine. That, they had lots of speculation for who number two was, but nobody nobody complained that there was a number two, who was also called Yahweh. And my dissertation yeah. dealt with the whole range of who they thought it was. Well, when the Christians come along, and Jesus is equated with with uh, the, the cloud rider, with the Son of Man, when he's standing in front of Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the high priest of Israel. He knows his Bible. He says, okay, you know, come on, you know, tell us who you are. Quit beating around the bush. Tell us who you are. Are you the, are you the Messiah? What? You know, what's going on? And Jesus, to us, gives a throwaway answer. He says, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds with great glory. That's his uh-huh. answer. <laughs> wow. And, 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 I mean, we, think, we look at it like, well, is he trying to be cute? Is he trying to be cryptic? Is he, you know... No, he's giving it to him right between the eyes. I'll tell you who I am. 
I'm the cloud rider in Daniel 7. I'm deity. I'm the son of man. And we know Caiaphas took it that way. Why? Because what does he do right after Jesus says that? He tears his clothes and says, this is blasphemy. We have no further need of witnesses. I mean, it, this is just point blank, right in the face to Caiaphas. And Jesus knew what the result would be. Mm. But the New Testament does this kind of thing with, there's all sorts of, of deity language. There's John's idea of the word. We think, oh, that, that must be special revelation. Give it to John. And then, no, it's not. The word of God is the one who comes to Abraham in Genesis for the covenant. The word of God comes in a vision. It's something you can see. Samuel, you know, Samuel, the, the, word, of, the word of the Lord was revealed to Samuel. Well, when, when Samuel goes through the whole episode with Eli, and he goes, you know, Eli says, it's not me. You know, if, if the voice comes to you again, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And Samuel does that. And the text says in verse 13, 1 Samuel 3, it says that the Lord came and stood before Samuel as at other times. And it says that the word of the, that, that Yahweh visited Samuel at Shiloh through the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and in, in seven verses later, it says, and he, and he reached out his hand and touched my mouth. This is an embodied human figure called the Word. This is where John gets the idea. He's not channeling some Hellenistic philosopher, okay? He's, 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 he's intimately familiar with his Old Testament. You know, there's all sorts of things like this that, that show you know, this this binatarian you know, word. The, the key is that Yahweh, the invisible Yahweh, shows up in certain passages with the visible one, and so there are two. Have you found that, Daniel that, 7. that these arguments are persuasive to studious Jews? You know, to, to be honest with you, I haven't really been around them. <laughs> Uh -huh. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, get out that often, to be honest. With you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, really, I don't. I mean, I, I, I do. The only thing I, I can really do is put material on my website and get articles published and, and whatnot. Now, this, this event last weekend was, it was the first time I've been in a church uh, presenting that, and so maybe you know there will be other opportunities. But right now, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty much been writing. Let me give you a story though. When I was in, in grad school, um, while I was writing my dissertation in, in the summers. At the University of Wisconsin, they would have uh, they would they would truck in lots of senior citizens from Florida to winter in Wisconsin because it was more tolerable, and they would let grad students teach them classes during the day, you know, and just don't anything. So I got an email asking me to present something. I thought, oh, I'll I'll do angels and Judaism, and I didn't know that they everybody was Jewish. So I walked into the room. I got I got forty people in the room, and I start going into this two powers in heaven stuff. And there's this little old lady in the front row, and she goes. You know, she's looking at me like, I got two heads again. And, she, and I said, is there a problem? And she said, my rabbi never told me this. And I said, oh, are you Jewish? And then some guy in the back yells out, we're all Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, but I had him for six weeks, and they loved it. They loved it because I used nothing but the Old Testament to show them, you know, a Godhead. And at the wow. end of the class, I had a couple of them, you know, come up to me and say, you know, I, I, I really understand now how Christians can believe this stuff and still accept the Old Testament and still accept the God of Israel and still wor and worship Jesus and it's not 
probably do. I mean, I, I get it. You know, the, the, the lights went on, but, but very, very open about the fact that they had never heard any of this. They, they had, and they had never been shown any of this from from the Tanakh, you know, from the Hebrew Bible. So this has been but a I think lost it's great value, but yeah, the, you know, what remains to be seen. This has been a lost opportunity for Christians who are ignorant of these things to, to be able to use as a tool to spread the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would agree. I think it has great apologetic and evangelistic value um, for Jewish people uh, because I've I've seen just in that one group, I've seen how. You know, if they're patient with you, and and they'll they'll give you a hearing, you can show them right from their own text. Look, this is where. Why is it that a, that a, a Christian, the first Jew, the first Christians were Jews? These people were willing to be put to death over polytheism. They would not worship the gods of Rome. They would not worship the gods of the emperor. But at the same time, they turn around, they pray to Jesus, they call Jesus God, they sing to him. Why? Why didn't they see that as a contradiction? And the answer is because they had these categories in their head, in their hearts already. They mm. knew that there was, there was an invisible Yahweh and a visible one. They worked together in tandem. The, you know, the second Yahweh was but wasn't Yahweh. Well, he, he is because he's the same essence. He's called Yahweh, but he's not because he reports to him, just like we speak of Jesus. You know, Jesus is God, but he isn't. He's not the Father. He's God, but he's not the Father. He's he prays to God. You know, he speaks of God. He, you know, he comes from God. He's sent by God. You know, just the same kind of language that we use, and we interchange God and Jesus, but yet we maintain a hierarchical relationship. Mm-hmm. That's in the Old Testament. And, did, and when you show people that, they get it. Did the centurion maybe accidentally step into this concept when he talked about how he understood authority in the delegation of power that goes, and Jesus said he had never seen faith like that in all of Israel? You know, he, he could have, because this is going to be a surprising statement, but there were a lot of pagans, and they were practicing pagans, who were monotheists. There's a, there's a whole scholarly discussion and, and, a, and, and a book on pagan monotheism in, in, in Roman times in the first century, so... Wow. It's conceivable that he could have thought of that in the same way. That is conceivable. Hmm. I don't. I don't know that that's the case, but it is possible. Uh huh. Well, D- Dr. Heiser, uh, we're getting just a, a couple minutes away for conclusion here, but uh, but I want to ask you about. Uh, there's been some really interesting news lately about some texts that have be- recently uncovered uh, mm-hmm. that were Jewish texts that talked about uh, either the name of Jesus or this concept of dying and resurrecting in three days. Uh, yeah, you're was, referring to the Gabriel tablet? Well, and it was talked about even when I was speaking in Montreal, a Kabbalist. Well, I don't even know if he was referring to the same thing, but he said it was a secret that had been passed down through the whole era of their teachers, and it had been hidden, but it was a secret knowing that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would die and resurrect in three days. And it just totally blew me away when he announced it. The following week I saw something reported in the news that sounded similar. Do you have any quick comments on a minute or so about this well, is the significance? Yeah, if it refers to the, the the so-called visions of Gabriel or the the Gabriel tablet, the Gabriel inscription, your, your listeners can just Google it. Um, this is a text that mentions it has a, it has a Messiah figure. It uses the term you know Mashiach uh, in the tablet, and, and this figure dies and rises in three days. Um, there's no name, it, it's pre-Christian, and so the discussion is that this tablet establishes that 
that this idea that we thought came from Christianity was much earlier in Judaism. I've not seen anything that suggests the text is inauthentic. Uh, you can imagine there's a scholarly discussion going on about how to understand uh, the wording. There are people on both sides with theological commitments or not on both sides. Um, I would only say this. There's only one idea in there that, that you can't find in your Old Testament. I mean, you can find the three days and the sign of Jonah and right. all that kind of stuff. You, you don't see necessarily the linkage. There's no passage in the Old Testament, for instance, that says that, that the Messiah you know, will die and rise in, in, on the third day. But there really, there frankly isn't, isn't any language about the Messiah in one place for lots of things that we know are messianic. I mean, you have to triangulate. And, and comb and put together all all this material. So it, it's it's new in that it's in one place. You know, that one thought is in one place. It's not new in that you can get these ideas from your, your Hebrew Bible scattered throughout. You know, you, mm-hmm. if you just do the work. But you know, I think it's important. You know, to find a, a text. What it tells you is that there were Jewish thinkers and writers mm-hmm. who were thinking about Messiah in the same way that the Christians said. This is this is what what's going on here. This is the case. This is what's supposed to happen. Do- Dr. Heiser, we have about one minute or less. Can you quickly mm-hmm. tell us again your website, uh, any books or other materials that you have available, anything that our listeners can follow up and study more of your work? Sure. I mean, the website is www.michaelsheiser.com or www.thedivinecouncil.com. I've sort of popularized uh, the Divine Council idea. Uh, in, in a science fiction novel I've written called The Facade. You could go to AlienAnswers.com if you want a sort of a fictional sci-fi story with this as part of the mm-hmm. plot. But if you want The Divine Council, you go to TheDivineCouncil.com, and if you put the forward slash in Tacoma.htm, uh, you will get all the slides I put out this weekend for Jewish binitarianism. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Heiser, I want to invite you back again yeah. as soon as you can come. We've got to cut yeah. off real quickly here. Uh, but uh, I just want to thank you again for contending for the faith when you're on national radio on Coast to Coast and other places. You make me very proud as a fellow believer that you contend so magnificently for the faith and represent us so well. And I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. And God bless you, Dr. Heiser. Yeah. Please come again very, very soon. And with all the news breaking, we'd like to have you back for comments. All right, well, I'd love to chat with you and Tom again. Okay, yeah, thanks man. again. Yep, you bet. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And today it's Friday, which means it's time for... Movie night? No. <laughs> Rub the dog's belly? You need to uh, be here for okay, rehearsal. Okay, okay, okay. I know what day it is. Tomorrow's Tremors <laughs> or today's review of the Future's News. Time when Dr. Future gets hot under the collar with his co-host. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful to be back with you. We hope yeah. you enjoyed the uh, interview this week. And uh, we're going to cover a number of news items right now. It just gets more and more interesting in the world, more and yeah. more confusing. And I tell you, that the thing that's been on my mind lately, it, the more I study and the more I talk to other people, the the harder it is to figure out Who's really doing what? Who are the good guys and bad guys? Yeah, what the heck's going on? I'm so thankful for uh, the Bible. The Word of God is the one thing we can guarantee for sure. We mm-hmm. know it's your foundation. 
But outside of that, it gets very difficult. And in fact, amongst a number of people, many of whom are guests on our show, uh, people who have been very reliable, none of us sometimes can agree sometimes on some things. Yeah, it's interesting how As that we're works, getting data. It? So yeah. all I can suggest to you folks is stay tuned. Uh, listen very critically. Uh, don't take anything we say, much less anybody else, at face value. Uh, go do your own research. We just put, present some information to you for consideration, mm-hmm. uh, stuff we think you may not be hearing about elsewhere. Uh, and we all have to do our own di- due diligence and be Bereans. And we appreciate feedback from all of you all. If you send us uh, emails that Merv will tell you about how to do that later, we need to find out some feedback from you. But we did have some interaction uh, back on the 30th. With yeah. some of our fans, what, tell well, us about what happened. Well, what in fact he's talking about, folks, is uh, our documentary movie night we had down there at the Anchor Fellowship, down uh, on Third Street. Down on Third Street, there six two nine, I believe, is the uh, mm-hmm. is the address. Uh, and we had a great we had a great turnout. I don't know what what maybe forty fifty people. Nah, it seemed like a whole lot more than that. I mean, it was a full room. Okay. How many do they hold there in the church? Oh, I think about a hundred. I didn't see too many empty seats. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's be conservative and say seventy-five. I'd say seventy-four and a half. Or seventy-four and a half. Okay. Did you were but you responsible it, for the half? It was a. <laughs> yes, I'm one and a half. Just in Gur. Oh, I just thought you uh, maybe you know were like sawing somebody. No, no, no. But it was a very enthusiastic audience. Yeah. And it was really gratifying. And I want to thank you all, fellow Futurians out there, particularly ones who had sh- showed up. Yeah. That when we asked for a show of hands of people who were regular Future Quake listeners, we had a room full of hands. Every hand went up. And yeah. even when we asked for those who listened uh, via WENO on the radio, we still had a whole yeah, room full of hands. Yeah, there's quite a few hands there. And uh, so we were just tickled to death that yeah. we have good listeners, and that gives us encouragement and feedback, too. Well, one of the things, too, that I thought was really great, uh, as I, I can't remember if we mentioned it or not, but Chris Pinto was actually there to do question and answer after the movie. Well, we were watching his one of his very first documentaries, yes. Megiddo One. Mm-hmm. We watched his documentary, and then after the, after the thing, we took a little break, and uh, then he got up and answered questions for an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, and let me just very, say for very productive, very those simple. of you, if you consider to come to a future one of these, it is a perfect environment for watching something like a documentary. It's, mm-hmm. Even though it is a church auditorium, it's not your typical no. kind of decorations and things. It's very bohemian feeling. Yeah. They have drinks and snacks and things like that there that you can get. Uh, I don't know. It's just a neat, conducive atmosphere mm-hmm. for a group of like-minded the anchors, people to get The Anchor is very, a very artistically minded church, and it, it I thought the atmosphere... Went very well with the uh, the showing. And if you're just catching this show going across the dial and you're not somebody who normally goes to a church of any type and feels uncomfortable there, mm-hmm. I don't think you'd feel uncomfortable in the anchor. I think I don't you think don't have to that. worry because you're not into that culture and things like that. You'd feel mm-hmm. very welcome there. They try to welcome everybody. And they are very enthusiastically supportive of our show. In fact, I I found it so neat to walk in and to see right on the walls in the main door going up in the sanctuary to see big posters for Future Quake. That was great. And they're beautiful. They're actually just a really Mm cool-looking handout, and they've passed those out everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, We found some things from um, Colette uh, Berque from her uh, ministry as well, too, there. Mm -hmm. But... uh, First of all, the documentary was incredibly well received. Yes. And then, like you said afterwards, people had tons of questions uh, about the documentary, or just yeah. very spiritual in nature. And questions. to me, that was that was the thing that I thought was coolest. Usually, in situations like that, you know, you'll get two or three questions, and then Chris will end up speaking. Chris, or you know, whoever's right. doing the presentation, will end up speaking quite a bit uh, to kind of fill time. In this case, the whole evening was 
was uh, uh, you know Chris answering questions after the movie. Right. And that, right. I I was really encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know I'll tell you what else that I was encouraged by is uh, Chris Pinto's Bible knowledge. That guy is a, incredible. That guy's a hoss. Hard to stomp. Yeah. Hard hard to stump. Yeah. And uh, he's just such an asset here to Nashville that the Lord. Uh, in his grace chose to send him yeah. here from Southern California recently mm-hmm. to here. He's got a number of projects, mm-hmm. uh, a few things we've even been able to give a hand on, which oh, yeah. is going to be very exciting for mm, that's gonna be our fellow Futurians when they see this coming out soon. Once it's official, you'll uh, you'll get to see it. We'll plus, announce it. Plus some other things that are uh, just slightly predate us, but there's some mind-blowing things, and we'll have Chris mm-hmm. back on to talk about yeah. them. Um, he is really changing the face of the discussion in so many areas in yeah. Christian talk through his work. And uh, there's something special happening here in Nashville. I'm just convinced of it. Mm-hmm. He's sending very special people our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're finding convergence. And I think I felt that uh, at, at the documentary night that we're meeting like-minded people. Very much so. Many people of which didn't know anybody else was concerned about the same things we are, mm-hmm. what we talk about here. And uh, it was hard to break us up. Late at night, because people were still talking. And Everybody wanted to talk notes. and discuss and fellowship. Yeah, uh, and that's. I think for me, that was probably the greatest thing about mm-hmm. it. Get together with a bunch of folks who are all sort of on the same page, right? Uh, but still have a bunch of you know different information that we can all put together and kind of come mm-hmm. up with some sort of uh, yeah. uh, framework or. And I want to thank uh, Pastor uh, Joshua Stump. Oh yeah, for uh, both hosting us. And Pastor Stump and uh, Brother Holmes there. That's right. Yeah, uh, they were great. Brother Holmes of the CAAA, uh, Christian Action Against Apathy, mm-hmm. and we give a call out to you here. We just thank you all so much for putting that together. But the key thing is, is that it was such a big hit. We're going to try to make this a regular deal monthly. Yeah, right? yeah, and that's our next big. That's the next big announcement. The last Saturday of every month, we're doing documentary movie night. Uh, so it's the twenty seventh. I think so. I'll have to look at the calendar. Okay. Have you picked a uh, uh, topic? Yes, I believe we're actually going to do Megiddo two. Oh. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, as much as I like Megiddo one, I like Megiddo two be even better. better. Yeah. And it's we're going to try and information back. you don't see anywhere. I yeah. mean, it's just stuff you don't see. Mm-hmm. Even though Chris is in right in the throes of, of a lot of shooting right now locally here in town with. Uh, that guy's footage. that guy's weeks must be like he's like oh yeah it was really slow I only worked like eighty hours this week yeah you know I only yeah. woke up at four a.m. and worked till yeah. midnight I wish I only had eighty hour weeks on future yeah, myself. yeah I know I know it's tough. but um, anyway highly recommend everybody come mm-hmm. in fact what I'm probably going to do is cut short my slot car race in Louisville Kentucky really as Doctor Future and and come back after I win that race up there come back and mm-hmm. go straight to the uh, to the anchor. Cool. Off the road and be there just in time because that's where it's at. Yeah. Everybody, please come. Uh, I'll try to remember to update the website to mm-hmm. remind everybody of the date and time. So you wow. go to futurequake.com if you need further details. Yeah. But I guess we need to go on to stories. Yeah, I think it's news time. How do you want to go? Uh, you want to do a uh, Rochambeau? Uh, what's that? Paper, rock, paper, scissors. What, was this a French version of what you just said? Yeah, that's what you call it sometimes. Rochambeau? Yeah. I thought that was a uh, like a college football coach. Well, it's actually a sandwich, but well, I, didn't think you, right. I, I didn't think you'd get it. <laughs> well, wait, how many stories you got? Two. Two? But they're kind of long. Well, let me do a little quickie yeah, you one. D- you do a quick one. You get them warmed up. People glaze over with the long ones, so be yeah. sure and be ready to skip. I put my long ones to the yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've sectioned it off here nicely, so it's okay. there's good. large sections we can skip over. Uh, here's, a sh- here's a short one. All right. Hit us. Third U.S. ship due in the Black Sea next week. Uh 
This is from Washington, American Free Press. Uh, a third U.S. ship carrying humanitarian aid was due to arrive in Georgia next week, as Georgia overseas, while two others that unloaded their aid in Batumi remain in the Black Sea, the Pentagon said Thursday. The USS Mount Whitney flagship of the U.S. Sixth Fleet is going to swing in Suda Bay, Crete, and pick up humanitarian supplies and will probably not arrive before sometime next week, said Pentagon spokesman. Uh, without naming words to dock, the Dallas, a U.S. Coast Guard ship, has completed its offloading of humanitarian relief supplies. Batumi has b- b- departed Batumi. They're probably very, very glad to get out of Batumi, I'm guessing. The U.S.'s Dallas is getting out and making for Dodge. Yeah. While 34 tons of supplies were unloaded Wednesday to date, 947 tons of humanitarian assistance have been sent to Georgia by the U.S. I wonder how uh, much of that humanitarian assistance includes, like, Machine guns. I wanted to say that, but I thought you'd get after me for saying that. How dare you say that? I know. <laughs> I, exactly what I wanted to say. Well, well you know, the, it just seems sort of weird. I mean, it's not been a natural disaster or anything like that for for them to be sent, particularly the U.S., with all yeah. the tensions well, they, going on. Well, and, and no less than uh, the Russian prime minister said that they may have, may have given uh, military aid along with humanitarian aid. Yeah. And they would, if that was confirmed, they would regard that as an act of war. Which I, I wouldn't know what all they would need because the uh, Israeli army already gave them tons of stuff by their own admission on Debka. The Israeli army outfitted them with more weapons than they could possibly use and had a thousand advisors on the wow. ground. They well, were the ones who set up, my understanding, the actual original invasion. But uh, wasn't the prime, uh, prime minister, wasn't the, uh, the defense minister actually an Israeli? I heard something You know, I, hear, I heard some connection yeah. like that. Yeah, he was and then the prime minister was, was the guy who ate his tie. Yeah. Did you see that? I did see that. That was a little weird. Yeah. I just. I had it. It's funny because I had a discussion. Check that out, ladies and gentlemen. If you ever seen a head of state eat his tie while he's on the phone, type in Saakashvili eats tie, and you'll get a number of videos of him chewing on his on a bright red tie. Saakashvili. How about Georgian president? They can't spell that. You can't spell Saakashvili. Maybe. Uh, Moscow has charged that humanitarian aid shipments could be used to camouflage naval buildup in the Black Sea. NATO on Thursday rejected Russian charges that it was stepping up its presence in the Black Sea. NATO said there was like, yaha, naha, yaha. <laughs> NATO said there were five warships taking part in exercises in the Black Sea. They were organized before Russia's military offensive in Georgia. On Thursday, U.S. President George Bush freed up as much as $5.75 million in aid to help Georgia meet unexpected and urgent refugee and migration needs stemming from the conflict. A brief uh, conflict erupted August 7th, and uh, that's what all this is about. Mm. Yeah, and really got going on 8-8-08 while the Olympics were going on. Mm-hmm. So that's Interesting. Mine. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, they keep building up more and more until somebody runs into somebody or somebody inspects the wrong ship. And then yeah. Well, really, it seems to me like all that they need is... Once is the Russians to say, okay, look, we're really going to go down this road. We're going to fight a full-scale war. That's what we're going to do. They just set their minds to it. Yeah. Really, more than anything, because it seems to me that the provo- uh, the uh, the provocation is probably there. Right. But, you know, who knows? Well, China is supporting them. Who? The Russians? Mm-hmm. Wow. But we have Georgia on our side, so you know, <sighs> if the guy can keep from eating his tongue. Oh, Atlanta. <laughs> no less. Okay. No more Georgia on our mind. Uh, yeah. Give us another story. Uh, okay. Well, here's one. Uh, extreme and risky bioengineering, the only way to save planets, says scientists. Okay. 
Uh, this came from The Guardian. Political inaction on global warming has been so dire that nations now must now consider extreme technical solutions, such as blocking out the sun to address catastrophic temperature rise, as scientists from around the world warn today. Now I'm just trying to envision how they do that, like with a bunch of plastic bags, or yeah, it's going to be really big, isn't it? Yeah, it's a that's a that's one big garbage bag. What about if everybody just wore like real thick sunglasses? It would as be far as we know, it would be blocked out. Yeah, just an true. Idea. It's an idea. The experts say a reluctance to, at virtually all levels to address soaring greenhouse gas emissions means carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are on track to pass 650 parts per million which could bring an average global temperature rise of 4C centigrade. They call for more research on bioengineering and geoengineering options to cool the earth, such as dumping massive quantities of iron into oceans to boost plankton growth and seeding artificial clouds over oceans to reflect sunlight back into space. Is this what the chemtrails are? Is this what I don't doing? know. It could be. Although you may recall, may recall, I can't remember which show it was, but several, several, several shows ago, excuse me, uh, I read a news story where the uh, um, everybody said all these scientists said the the sea ice is gone. It's gonna it's gonna be gone by right. the end of the year. That's right. And then uh, it dipped, took a thirty percent dip, and they all went went bonkers, and now it's back to normal. Huh. So maybe uh, you know that would be a bummer if they found out this whole need to block the sun was oops, a mistake. My bad. Particularly when like <laughs> everything wilts and we get cold. That's probably what happened on Mars. Mm-hmm. They got that bright idea to do CIS, that, and then they yeah. just sort of went out and got out of control. Yeah, well, you know, you got the polar bears with the Coca-Colas. You get kind of yeah. freaked, freaked about them. Okay, more? More. Professor Launder, a mechanical engineer, told The Guardian, carbon numbers just don't add up, and we need to be looking at other options, namely geoengineering, to give us time to let the world come to its senses. He said it was important to research and develop the technology so that they would develop if necessary. At the moment, it's almost like talking about how we could stop World War II with an atomic bomb, but we haven't done the research to develop nuclear fission. Uh, let's see. Talk, uh, Professor Launder, did he just say it would all be a wash? He did. He. Uh, uh, it's that, that's actually uh-huh. his part-time job, okay. for sure. You know, he should be on Rinse.com. Yeah? Rinse Launder. Oh. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> W-R-I-N-E-S-N-S-E. Sorry for my dry humor Yeah, there. that's okay. Well, you guys, get the, you guys get the story here. These people are saying that we have to, have to, have to uh, block out the sun. You know, it's mandatory. No more discussion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, now, in meanwhile, Book of Revelation, they they're going to be successful at that, aren't they? Well, yes. Blocking is, out the sun? Well, there's there is some allusion to that, yes, which is why I thought the story was interesting. And their t- tongues will cleave to the roofs of their mouth. Now I don't know what that's about, but uh, there was some talk about blocking out the sun and the sky changing and all mm. this stuff. Interesting. So, all right, I've got another quickie here. What do you got? Uh, well, I I don't mean to you know beat a dead horse on this Georgia thing. I have oh, some, some more stuff, but while it's still there, while we can still speak about it. This is a story uh, that was taken from a, Georgia, a German weekly magazine, Georgia Planned Attack on Sleeping Civilians. Uh, it says, uh, this is from August 31st, evidence of numerous erroneous decisions of the Georgian leadership, which led to the beginning of a crisis, uh, are accumulating in the OSCE headquarters, said the German weekly mag- magazine Der Spiegel. 
in an announcement. You can't welcome, really say German other than like that. Welcome to Sprockets. Die Spiegel. <laughs> in an announcement of an article to be published it's on Dare Monday. You said Die Spiegel. I said Der Spiegel. You, you emasculated it's it. D-E-R. I know, but you didn't say D-E-R. You said D-I-E. Die Spiegel. You made All it a right. woman. Okay, thank you, seat of scoffers. <laughs> the magazine says that a lot of corresponding reports by OSCE observers... Uh, have unofficially fallen to the hands of some government authorities in Berlin. According to this data, Georgia has been actively preparing a military strike against South Ossetia and began the attack before Russian tanks entered the Roksky Tunnel connecting South Ossetia and Russia. Also, there are reports of observers who say that the Georgian authorities ordered the attack on South Ossetian civilians at night when they were sleeping, the announcement says. Wow. Yet more data that it was planned, a premeditated sneak attack. Well, I don't think you that's You will not really hear in, that in other media. Well, everybody has said that. The Russians have said that. Uh, even not our, not our, our regular main media. No, but even our prime minister over to Russia said that, yeah, well, we really did do right. it. Right. Right. Another story? We still have a few moments? Yes, we do. Usually we're busy yammering away about something nonsensical. So it's usually my fault. Let's so. yammer about this then. All right. St. Paul is a free country, cried a resident of Eaglehart Avenue, a neighborhood street in St. Paul, Minnesota, as she watched her next-door neighbors being taken over by police officers on Saturday afternoon. Just one in a series of house raids over a 24-hour period the weekend before the Republican National Convention, St. Paul police surrounded the private home with weapons drawn, detaining people in the backyard while journalists, activists, and neighbors, including several children, looked on. Their crime... All right. dun, 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 dun. None whatsoever. No one was trespassing or engaging in acts of civil disobedience. Instead, members of Eyewitness Video, a New York-based media watchdog group that records police activity in order to protect civil liberties, were, with, were holding an organizing meeting at 949 Eagleheart, the home of St. Paul resident Mike Whalen, when armed police officers arrived in the early afternoon and ordered their surrender. Hmm. So... They just kind of showed up, said, mm-hmm. y'all are going been, to prison. Been hearing about this, right? Yeah, and, and an interesting uh, connection to, to uh, our, our some of our past, to an, in, in an interesting connection to our past. That'd be a good way to say it. Among them was Eileen Clancy, who has no connection to our past, uh, founder of Eyewitness Video, as well as a producer with Democracy Now! exclamation point, DN exclamation point. Amy Goodman. Yes. People who know who Amy Goodman yeah. is, okay? Yeah. Uh, who has a vague connection to Future Quakes past. Yeah. Well, she's just well-known as alternative. Yes. She's probably the biggest name in alternative news and analysis. Really? Yeah. Wow. And her staff had just arrived in Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport when they received word that Elizabeth Press was in the house and being threatened with arrest. An urgent call, or an urgent alert had been sent by Clancy. This is Eileen Clancy. The house where Eyewitness Video is staying in St. Paul has been surrounded by police. We have locked all the doors. We've been told that if we leave, we will be detained. One of our people who was caught outside is being detained in handcuffs in front of the house. The police say they are waiting to get to get a search warrant. More than a dozen police are wielding firearms. So they didn't have a search warrant, but they had the capability mm-hmm. to keep them trapped in the house. Yes. Yes. So they kept them tra- trapped in the house. I'm proud to be an American. Yeah. Um, At least I know I'm yeah, free. Yeah, apparently, 
this goes this this article goes on and on, and I'm not uh-huh. sure what to make of it really. It's well, I, we're hearing all sorts of reports of that. In fact, uh, one of our friends of the show, Robert Hyde, yeah, is as we speak ever. at the time we're recording this, is in Minneapolis at the Ron Paul convention. Mm-hmm. And we had hoped to uh, interview him now, and we're not reaching him. So yeah. I assume he's probably under house arrest. Well, somewhere. according according to this, uh, according to the article, uh, one of the people on scene asked asked the detained if they had been read their Miranda rights, and uh, one of the detainees said no. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a pretty big stink there. I assume Robert Hyde's probably throwing some of those chairs through the windows there yeah. on the street level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all told, there were six raids uh, in St. Paul in 24 hours, resulting in six arrests. Uh, on Sunday, the Minnesota chapter of the National Lawyers, Lawyers Guild sent out a press release announcing that it, it is seeking prompt judicial review of the preventative detentions of the six people arrested, all of whom remain on probable cause hold in the Ramsey County Jail, mm. which means that they, uh, they haven't actually charged them with anything. But uh, there's probable cause, so we're going to hold them just for safekeeping. Hmm. We'll figure out something to charge them on later. Yes. And so that's the roundup from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Interesting. Well, Robert Hyde, if you're out there, call tonight, in. We pray for you. We hope you're safe. You and yeah. you and your buddies who went with you there. We are anxious for a report when you get back. Uh, I've got a quick one here as we're getting toward the end of the show here. This is again from Debka. Um, uh, Moscow halts Iran co- cooperation with U.S. will complete Bashir reactor. Uh, Bashir nuclear reactor to be ready to go by the end of 2008. This is Dateline August 30th uh, from Debka. The Georgia quarrel has all but derailed U.S.-Russian cooperation on the Iran issue. Moscow is not only uh, is not only pulling out of the diplomatic and sanctions front against Iran's nuclear program. According to Deb Kafal's Russian sources, Moscow has decided to finally finish building Iran's nuclear reactor in the southern town of Bashir before the end of the year, after holding back for five years at Washington's insistence. Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin said in reference to the impact of the Georgia row on U.S.-Russian cooperation Thursday, he said, if nobody wants to talk with us on these issues and cooperation with Russia is not needed, then for God's sake, do it yourself. Interesting candor from a state official. Yeah. Uh, Moscow has now committed to completing the reactor within four months. Debka files military sources report that the functioning plant will enable Iran to operate a heavy water plant and produce plutonium as an alternative to enriched uranium for for building a nuclear bomb. Tehran originally counted uh, on Syria's North Korean reactor at Al-Kabar for plutonium, and it was demolished by Israel in September. Putin's uh, sharp comment means that the West can forget about Russian support for another round of harsh sanctions to punish Iran. Uh, he made it clear that Western nations will have to resolve the standoff without Russian help if they refuse to cooperate with Moscow and Georgia. The Russians have lost no time in following through on their threat. This week, they are sending the head of their nuclear energy board to Tehran at the head of a large delegation. They will stay for at least 10 days to clear away the problems for getting the Bashir reactor up and running by the end of 2008. And I guess that's the end of it. Uh, but consider the source Debka, very pro-Israeli, mm-hmm. probably pro-attack. Yeah. But may well be true. They're often right. And we need to go to uh, Merv. All right, Merv. Merv, uh, tell people how they can get a hold of us and find out more about FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com 
suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we've got 30 seconds or so. Any last words on the news? Things are getting weird. I think we should rename the show to It's a Mess. Yes, It's a Mess. Everything's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really spiritually uplifting, wouldn't it? Yeah. You see that listing, like, you know, through the Bible, you know, a new day of discovery, it's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, I could see that on the uh, headline there. Coming up on the last chapter here, I think. the Lord is king, and he's in control of it all. Amen, amen, amen. hang in there, fellow futurians, with us as one day to the next. We're going to track it all. We're going to figure out what we can. We'll leave the rest to God and seek him and his holiness. So until then, it's uh, goodbye for this week, and until next week. We hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. quake.